Our goal this morning is to jump into a new section of the book of Ephesians. We've spent several weeks looking at that first section of the book, uh, that hymn of adoration, which is beautifully designed, orchestrated. Uh, It's just a marvelous section of the scripture. And yet now we're, we're ready to transition to the next major unit of the book. Now, again, as we look at the the overall context, don't forget, the book of Ephesians pretty easily divides in half. The first three chapters are all about doctrine, if you will. It's it's the believer's blessings in Christ. It's how what we are to believe regarding the person work of Christ, the role of the Spirit of God uh, in our life, etc. There's so much that is covered in those first three chapters. Uh, then the latter half of the book is going to be all about the duty of the believer, the behavior of the believer, and how how we are to live in light of that. But as we focus on that first half, the first 14 verses of the chapter really rehearse our possessions in Christ. It's that glorious hymn of adoration. It took us a number of weeks to work through uh, those varying stanzas and look at that in all of its beauty. Uh, And again, we didn't exhaust the passage by any means, but it it is just a wonderful portion of the scripture uh, heralding the, the glories of the triune God. Well, today we're going to look at that next major unit from chapter 1, verse 15 to the end of the chapter, where we're going to see a prayer for enlightenment. So again, don't forget where we left off. We we just finished looking at that hymn of adoration. The purpose of Paul's adoration, which was in verses 3 to 14, was not merely to inform us as readers, but also to inspire us as readers to greater love and loyalty to God for his work of redemption, right? I mean, he's, he's helping us lift our eyes heavenward to understand from eternity past to eternity future all that God has in store for us in the plan of redemption. And so that was the purpose of his adoration. Well, now you're going to see a very clear, it's, it's connected, but there's a clear hinge point. There's, a, uh, there's an advance in the thought. Because Paul is now going to begin a prayer to God on behalf of his readers. And the purpose of his prayer, which is contained in verse 15 to 23, is to pray for his readers so that they are encouraged and equipped to understand the precious truths he's teaching them. In other words, we'll see our big theme for today is is, is the prayer for enlightenment. But the big theme is this concept that, hey... God has so much in store for us. He just finished singing about it, right? This three stanzas arranged chronologically and theologically around the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and all that God has in store from eternity past to eternity future in his plan of redemption for his own. But for us to properly appreciate that, to have an appropriate response to that, we must understand it. We must grasp the glories of what he has been Uh, singing about and discussing. And so Paul pauses and he prays this prayer of enlightenment so that we would would gain from the Spirit of God that that work the Spirit of God does in our hearts and our minds, that illuminating, enlightening work where he helps us understand the deep, profound things of Scripture so that we can live in light of it, that we can live with with a heart of adoration to our God. And so this prayer is is incredibly fascinating in that regard. In fact, There are going to be two primary prayers that Paul is going to pray in the book of Ephesians. A huge portion of the book of Ephesians consists of these two prayers. The first one is what we'll begin our study here of this morning, chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. But the second one will show up in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. So I like to say these two prayers. One is a prayer for enlightenment. That's what we're studying here in chapter 1. Then the next one, which we'll get to in a couple of chapters, is a prayer for enablement. 
God helped them understand. God helped them do and live according to God's glory. So those are the purposes of those two prayers, but it's, it's fascinating how much space Paul devotes to this in the book of Ephesians. When you look at it from a percentage standpoint, it's rather remarkable. When you consider how many verses Paul devotes to these, uh, these two prayers. And this is, again, has a very practical purpose. In fact, I would suggest three practical purposes for why Paul records these prayers for us as readers. First, I think the purpose is, is simply to encourage the readers that Paul is praying for them. In other words, I think it would have been a great encouragement to those Ephesian believers as they receive this letter from Paul and they realize Paul, the apostle, is personally praying for them. They would have been encouraged by that. I myself am encouraged often when I have friends, mentors, reach out, say, hey man, I've been praying for you, or I pray for you every day, or whatever their you know, commitment level is, uh, they pray for me and they let me know. I try to reach out to others and say, hey, I'm praying for you. And when we, when we recognize people are praying for us, they're thinking of us, they're going to the throne of grace on our behalf, it is encouraging for us. So I think that has the first you know, practical function of, of Paul recording these prayers is simply that, that he's encouraging his readers, that he is indeed praying for them. But second, these prayers also serve to inform them as to where they need to grow and progress. In other words, Paul, and I'll camp on this a little bit more in just a second, but Paul is praying for their spiritual progress. But in what areas do they need spiritual progress? Well, think about the insight of the Apostle Paul himself. If, if Paul sat down to pray for Jeff South or for, put your name there, what would Paul pray for? This is what Paul would pray for. In other words, he's helping inform us as to how we are to grow in our Christ-likeness. Where do we need prayer and where do we need progress in our spiritual lives? So it's very helpful in that regard. But then thirdly, it's also helping them, helping instruct them on how to pray for others. I'm going to come back to that in just a few moments, but I think it's very insightful how much time Paul prays for fellow believers, and, and it's a bit of a rebuke uh, for me, at least. Perhaps it is for you as well, when we consider how much time we actually spend praying for fellow believers, and yet Paul put a high priority upon that, and I think we, we don't put a high enough priority upon that. And so... What I want to do is, is I'll, we'll begin by reading this section. We're not going to make it through the entirety of the prayer this morning. It's just too long. Uh, but we are going to look here in just a moment. We'll begin and read verse 15 to 23. And it's very similar in form to the praise that we just finished looking at. In fact, the hymn that we just finished looking at from verse 3 to 14 was one long Greek sentence. You remember that? Well, this is the same thing. If you study this in the original Greek, this sentence from verse 15 to verse 23 is one long Greek sentence consisting of 169 words, right? This is where you get a headache if you have to whip out you know, your diagram charts and start diagramming this sentence. It is one long sentence. Uh, but nonetheless, it, the, what I want you to see is it's one big thought unit. It all goes together. Now, we don't have the time to work through all these verses today, uh, so, so we'll have to sub subdivide it just by you know, nature of time constraints. But nonetheless, this is one big thought unit, and it all goes to together. But recognize that it is indeed an outgrowth of what Paul has already been saying. He begins with praise, right? He's thanking God for this process of redemption. That's the hymn of adoration we just finished. But it's like after he finishes praising the Lord, he's immediately driven to prayer. 
In other words, you can see in the heart of the Apostle Paul his own flow of thought, his own, you know, the outworkings of his, of his, his heart disposition, etc., that he praises God for what he's done in redemption, and then it turns to prayer. And he says, God, please help my readers understand this. In other words, he wants us to be able to grasp what he has just explained to us in the previous several verses. The praise of adoration, verses 3 to 14. He just gave it to us, but now he wants us to grasp it. But we need supernatural working in our hearts by the Spirit of God to be able to grasp these spiritual truths. And so he prays and he asks for God to work. So let's begin by reading this section, then we'll come back and we'll work our way as as far as we can through it. Uh, We'll probably only get a few verses here this morning. But let's begin by reading the prayer in its entirety so you can see the thought flow, and then we'll come back and start our examination of it. Okay, verse 15. He says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Right? What a mouthful. 169 words. But wow, what a blessed prayer this is, and incredibly insightful as to what we ought to prioritize in our own spiritual life. All right, now, back to verse 15. As we start the beginning of the prayer, I want you to begin by just first considering Three things. In other words, Paul's introduction to the prayer, before he gets to the prayer itself, the actual requests, he begins the prayer with these simple observations, or I want us to make these simple observations. First, I want you to see for whom Paul is praying. Second, to whom Paul is praying. And third, why Paul is praying. In other, in other words, as we look at his introduction to his prayer, He begins in verse 15 saying, uh, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. In other words, let's begin by just acknowledging for whom Paul is praying. Verse 15 highlights that Paul is praying for those who have faith in Jesus as the Lord of all and, and, and those who have love for all the saints. In other words, he's praying for true believers. He, it says in verse 15, again, this was, we, we kind of, don't forget, he's, it's still connected with what we studied last week. But at the end of the stanza three, that, that Paul was singing this praise the, to the triune God, he was praying, uh, or praising rather, this, the role of the Holy Spirit in the process of redemption. And that the believers heard the word of the gospel. Remember this, the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation. They heard it, they believed it, They were then sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Remember that progression? Well, now he's still talking about them as believers. 
And he says in verse 15, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love unto all the saints. And the idea there is that there are, he didn't just hear of their profession of faith in Christ, but he is convinced that it is a true possession of faith in Christ. In other words, if you heard that before, sometimes I make that distinction because the Bible makes that distinction. There's a difference between a profession of faith in Christ and a real possession of faith. Does that make sense? In other words, there are wolves in sheep's clothing, as, as Jesus put it. There are people who feign, fake, put up the facade of being a believer, but they're not true believers. They make a profession of faith, but they don't really possess genuine faith. Well, Paul here is convinced that his readers are genuine believers. Why? Because he says, I heard of your faith, right? There's your profession, but he also says, I know it's true. Why? Because you love all the saints. Now, he's going to come back to that later in the latter half of the book when we start talking about the practical outworkings of our Christian life in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. He's going to come back to this concept a lot about how genuine believers exhibit that by genuine love for other believers. And so he looks at this and he says, okay, I know you are genuine believers. He's convinced of that. And so he then says, verse 16, that he doesn't cease, but rather is always making mention of them in his prayers. So I want you to pause on this for just a second and consider the fact that Paul is praying for true believers. Now, obviously, according to other places in the scripture, namely Romans chapter 10 and verse 1, we are to pray for the lost. Do you do that? Do you, do you have a prayer list? Do you have friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, people you are praying for that God would bring them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? I hope so. Paul does that as he's praying for the unbelieving uh, portion of, of his people, the nation of Israel. He tells us that in Romans chapter 10. But what is fascinating is if you add up the ink in the New Testament, the ink that is dedicated to Paul praying for the lost, and you put that up against the ink that is Paul praying for the believers, when I first discovered this, it was astounding to me. It shocked me a little bit. Because in, mo in modernity, most of us spend more time, perhaps, praying for the unbelievers, or at least that is often you know, the prayer requests that are, uh, that are given. But Paul, according to at least what is recorded in the pages of the New Testament, actually prayed more. He spent more time praying for believers. And that observation leads me to this persuasion that we do not pray enough for the saved. We don't pray enough for one another that we would progress in our spiritual life. Again, it's profound how many prayers in the New Testament are directed toward the growth and progress of believers. And even Paul here, even as he's a prisoner for the cause of Christ, he models this sense of urgency in praying for the believers, not only in chapter 1, but also in chapter 3. And again, I think this is so fascinating, but when we consider not only the fact that he's praying for true believers, but what he is praying for, and we'll get to that in just a second, that is also a bit of a rebuke for us. Because your normal you know, prayer list has a lot to do with physical needs. Nothing wrong with physical needs. Jesus taught us to pray that way. Right? He says, give us this day our daily bread. Is it okay to pray for physical needs? Absolutely, that is okay. But when it comes to the percentage of priority that Paul places in his own prayer life, he spends more time praying for the spiritual needs of believers than he does the physical needs. 
And he, it's illuminating to us, and as we read the prayers of the Apostle Paul, contained throughout numerous epistles, but again, Ephesians gives so much ink to this idea, it's very helpful. But it's, it's illuminating to see what is it that Paul is praying for. In other words, what are our primary spiritual needs that we need, that we need to be praying for, for ourselves and for our collective you know, body of Christ right here, the believers that you're sitting next to? Which then just leads me to this personal you know, pondering. But I often wonder this. How much of our own spiritual apathy and, and excess, so in other words, we're not doing enough or we're doing too much, right? Our spiritual struggles of apathy or excess might be credited to our lack of prayer for ourselves and our fellow believers. I want you to just ponder that for just a second and start asking the question, would I be doing better in my spiritual life if I had more people praying for me? I think all of us would sit back and say, well, yeah, the obvious answer to that is yes. But practically, when you play that out, then why don't we pray more? Right? We, in other words, we, we don't really believe that if our actions don't follow it up. Because our actions actually betray our true beliefs. And so if we're not praying, then we don't actually believe this to be the case. And if you are struggling with someone in the body, someone in your family, a fellow believer in particular, have you prayed about it recently? Have you prayed for your spiritual growth and theirs that now you would be able to move past and grow, and as we'll see later in, in Ephesians chapter 4, he's going to make a big deal of this, strive to keep the unity in the bond of peace? Have you prayed about that recently? And I just wonder how much of our spiritual apathy or excess might be credited to our lack of prayer for ourselves and our fellow believers in these areas. But not only do I want you to see for whom Paul is praying, I also want you to see to whom Paul is praying. He says it explicitly in verse 16 and 17 that he ceases not to give thanks for them, the believers, making mention of you always in my prayers. But he says, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom, revelation, knowledge of him, etc. In other words, Paul is, he, he specifies to whom he is offering this prayer. Now, again, this is helpful, especially when you place it back in its original context, but the Ephesian believers, the original audience of this letter, lived in a very pluralistic society. We've talked about that much. The city of Ephesus was very pluralistic. There were many gods and goddesses that were being worshipped. So Paul has to clarify to whom he prays. But then he also not only clarifies to whom he prays, but he lists the credentials of him to whom he prays. In other words, Paul identifies God in two ways in verse 17. He calls God the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then secondly, he calls him the Father of glory. He calls God the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory. What are those two getting at? What are those two descriptions, titles getting at? Well, let's contemplate them for just a moment. But the phrase God of our Lord Jesus Christ is probably referring to the fact that God, he is praying to the God who has bestowed upon them salvation through Jesus of Nazareth, the prophesied Messiah. Jesus Christ, remember, is a name and a title. We often say Jesus Christ is his name. Well, technically Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. His title is Christ, Messiah. The word Christ is, comes from Greek, right? But it means anointed one. And from Hebrew, it's the term Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. 
But here, Paul is directing his prayer to God who has given them the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is the God who has bestowed upon us salvation through Jesus of Nazareth, who is indeed the Messiah, the prophesied Christ, prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures. In other words, this is a way of referring to the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who began in the Garden of Eden by giving us promises about the one who had come, the one who would be the deliverer, the Messiah, that God who is the creator of all things, the one who has promised redemption, the scarlet thread, as it is sometimes called, through the Old Testament scriptures, scarlet thread being a reference to the messianic prophecies that God gives concerning the coming Messiah. So he references that we're not talking about, in other words, Paul says, I'm not praying to Isis or Osiris or Sibylle or fill in the blank of one of the gods and goddesses of the various Greco-Roman pantheons. He says, I'm not praying to any of them. I'm praying to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who told us that Jesus was coming, the one who prophesied, the one who brought Jesus into the world, the one that Jesus himself prayed to. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But secondly, he calls him the father of glory, which in and of itself is a fascinating phrase. But the idea, it's, it's a, it, we see it throughout the scriptures to refer to the one true God who lives in inexpressible glory. Stephen refers to him in his sermon in Acts chapter 7 and verse 2, the God of glory, he calls him. Hebrews chapter 9 verse Five describes how God would manifest himself in the wilderness tabernacle in the pages of the Old Testament through the glory cloud, the Shekinah, we sometimes call it. It's the Hebrew word that means that which dwells. It refers to the physical, visible, tangible, if you will, presence of God that, was, that exhibited itself, manifested itself from the wilderness tabernacle, later the temple throughout the Old Testament. Paul will put it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16, that God is a God who dwells in light, unapproachable. He is the God of glory. But not only is he himself glorious, but the father of glory also may imply that not only is God himself glorious, but secondly, he imparts his glory and power on behalf of his people. He's the God who gives us glory. In fact, Paul elsewhere, not in Ephesians, but in Romans chapter 5, he wallows in this reality. He says, we have glory. We have the hope of glory. And again, I think he alludes to that idea, not with that exact phrase, but he alludes to that idea later in this same passage when he talks about the hope of our calling, that we will one day not only see God in his glory, right? The idea is that we are to the praise of his glory. Remember that sermon all the way back in you know, the first stanza of chapter one? that we are made to the praise of his glory, that one day we will join the heavenly throng around the throne of grace And we will be there seeing God in his glory, but we will also be robed in glory. We ourselves, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, will one day be robed in the righteousness of Christ. Jesus himself in in, uh, the parable, the wheat and the tares, in Matthew chapter 13, describes the saints who are gathered and brought into glory as shining bright as the sun, he says. Matthew 13, verse 43. And the idea is that we will ourselves be robed in glory. And so he's the father of glory. Not only that he is glorious, but he grants glory to all who trust in him. And so he, this is the God to whom Paul is praying. And he wants, he wants us to recognize that we must direct our prayers to this God. Jesus taught us the same 
thing, right? When his disciples asked him, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In other words, we are to pray to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. That's to whom we pray. But then, as Paul goes on in verse 17 and 18, he gives us the reason why he is praying. Why is Paul praying? Well, he's asking specifically for three things, and these are essentially synonyms though there is some semantic difference between them, and we'll just briefly summarize. But he's praying for these three things, wisdom, revelation, and enlightenment. Look at verse 17 again. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom. There's the first one. And revelation in the knowledge of him. There's the second one. And, verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know, and then on he goes. But he's praying for wisdom, revelation, and enlightenment. Now, he calls these things as being of the Spirit. Do you see that in verse 17? He says that he may give unto you the Spirit of wisdom, revelation, and enlightenment. In other words, all three of these things are special operations of the Holy Spirit. Some will take take, take that as a little, little s, that he will give you the spiritual insight into it. But I think it's better taken as the Holy Spirit because of elsewhere in the scripture that we see that this is the role of the Holy Spirit. We'll go to some of those passages in just a few moments. But this is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And notice how it leaves off. He just finished singing that third stanza to the Holy Spirit. That's verses 13 and 14. We talked about that last week. But now he's continuing in his prayer to... Harken back to the role of the Holy Spirit, not only in the, the future, right, the, the glorious inheritance that's coming, that the Spirit now functions as our seal and earnest for that coming inheritance, but he also, the Spirit of God, also functions in a present tense sort of ministry right here, right now, right today, as we gather in this corporate setting, as Peter prayed just moments ago, Lord, teach us. He was doing what Paul here is doing. He is praying that the Spirit of God does the work that only he can do in giving us wisdom, revelation, and enlightenment. So all of these three things are special operations of the Holy Spirit of God, whose end goal is to grant to us a deeper knowledge of God through Christ. He wants us to know God through Christ. That in and of itself is a, is a profound concept, but God has revealed himself, the book of Hebrews says, In manifold various ways, at various times and various ways, God has revealed himself. But in these last days, what is the greatest unveiling, revelation that God has ever made of himself? The word revelation means unveiling. It's it's the idea of pulling the curtain back so you can see behind, see what's on the other side. The greatest revelation that God has ever given of himself is in Jesus Christ. God incarnate. God walking around on earth as the God-man. That is the greatest revelation we've ever seen of who God is and what he's like. But even to understand God, to understand God's revelation of himself through Christ, we have to have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the primary member of the triune God head that is the one who gives us wisdom and revelation and enlightenment. So Paul knows that it will take the work of the Spirit in order to thoroughly convince them, that is his readers, 
of God's glory and power in the deepest recesses of their souls, especially given their pluralistic background and environment. For them to understand the power of God rather than fear the power of Sibylle or Isis or Dionysius or you know, fill in the blank. Rather than fear those false gods, they are to fear the one true and living God and be loyal to him. And Paul says, God, help them to see you and you alone are the God worthy of worship. You and you alone are to be prayed to and feared and followed, etc. And Paul knows, for them to grasp this, which by implication is also true of us, for us to grasp this, we have to have the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Spirit of God has to work to grant these three things. What three things? Well, wisdom, revelation, and enlightenment. Wisdom, if we were, and again, these are all synonyms in a sense, but if we were to put them as a, def, you know, try to put a definition on them, wisdom is the spirit granting a growing and deeper knowledge of God that makes cognitive, takes cognitive knowledge of the scripture and impresses it deeply on the human heart so that it becomes a settled conviction. That's one helpful definition that I, that I came across. But wisdom is that which the Spirit grants. When he grants a growing and deeper knowledge of God that takes cognitive knowledge of the Scriptures. In other words, does wisdom mean information? Yes, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. You can't be wise unless there is some level of information. But wisdom is taking uh, information and making it into conviction where it's a settled conviction in my heart. And I know this to be the case. And I'm immovable on that. You can say what you will, but you're not convincing me otherwise because I'm convicted of the truth of the scripture. I'm convinced. That's what the word convicted also means convinced. I'm convinced of it. And what's what's interesting, uh, you know, I, I mentioned Stephen earlier in his sermon where he calls God the father of glory. It also describes Stephen as having this sort of wisdom. In Acts chapter 6, verses 3 and, 3 and 10, it describes how Stephen begins to teach in the local synagogues. Do you remember this? And it says that even the greatest religious leaders, the elite, the religious elite, that are supposed to have whole books of the Bible memorized. It says they could not resist the wisdom of Stephen. And who is he? He's just your average Greek-speaking believer in Christ that was elevated and you know, appointed as a deacon, and then he goes around preaching in the synagogues. He's not a professionally trained rabbi, but he, at, he outsmarts them at every turn. He has supernatural wisdom. As he teaches the word of God, they cannot refute his wisdom. Why? Because he has the spirit of God. That's a good, a good illustration of the access that the spirit of God gives to wisdom. For his children. But not only is Paul praying that we have wisdom, but also revelation. I mentioned this a moment ago. The word revelation, uh, apocalypso or apocalypse uh, is, the, is the noun form, but the idea is it means to unveil something, to pull back the curtain so we see what's on the other side. This might refer to the process of inspiration and the giving of new revelation, as Paul will reference this later in the book. Uh, in Ephesians 3, for instance, he will talk about the fact that God has granted to Paul. New information, new revelation that was not included in the Old Testament. And Paul, as a prophet, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, is giving to us new revelation, inspired scripture. And he might be alluding to that right here, that the Spirit would aid him in that process. 
so that as we read the scripture, that we would come to a greater understanding of the truth that God revealed to Paul and through Paul to us. But it also might reference uh, this other, which I, I think the third word definitely references, this other category, if you study theology, there's a difference between revelation and illumination. Revelation is the act where God gives us new information that he did not before give us. God reveals new information. Paul will elsewhere call it in the, in the book of Colossians, he calls it the secret things of God that he revealed to us. God told us his secret that we wouldn't have figured out otherwise. God had to tell us. That's the act of revelation. But once we have God's revelation, for instance, right here in the Bible, in written form, we have the word of God in front of us, we also need another work of the Holy Spirit, which is often called illumination, which is what helps believers understand already existing revelation. Are you with me? Well, that's probably... For sure, what this third word is getting at, the word enlightenment or illumination. The word translated enlightenment in verse 15 is photizo in Greek. It's actually where we get English words like photo, phosphorescent. I didn't add it, but photograph, right? Photograph. What's photograph? It's actually two Greek words jammed together. It means literally to write with light, to write with light. That's what a photograph is. It's capturing the light uh, and the, the image that as the light comes in and presses itself upon the film, etc. I know that's old school, right? We went digital these days, but no, nonetheless. But that's what a photograph is. And this idea of photizo in Greek, it means to light up, to shed light upon, to, to help people see and thereby understand and grasp. That's what the word itself means. Which implies that it's not enough to merely be informed we also must understand and be inspired to affection and action. For those of you who are not aware, the word understand is an old English word. It's, it's, it's an English word, but it's connected with an old English root that literally means to stand in the midst of, to see something from all angles. To understand something means that you have a grasp of all of its components, constituent parts, and how it operates and interrelates. You grasp it. You could take it apart and put it back together again. That's the idea. Because you understand it. Well, that is what Paul is praying for when it comes to our, our understanding of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ in the process of redemption. It's not enough to merely be informed. We must also understand and why is this the case? What is, in other words, the necessity for enlightenment? Let me suggest there are three biblical reasons why God must supernaturally flip the switch and turn the lights on in our head and our heart so that we could understand and grasp biblical truth. Why is this a necessity? Why must it be a work of God and not merely a work of man? For three reasons. First, because of the spiritual nature of divine truth. Go to 1 Corinthians real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 and 2, verse 14. So I'm going to read a couple verses here real quick. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9. Get this. It says, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things 
which God has prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. Verse 11, For what man knows the things of man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knows no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God. Why? That we may know the things that are freely given to us of God. Verse 13, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, the word natural there in Greek is actually where we get the English word physical, or soulish, actually. Suke. He says, The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, Back up again to verse 9. It says, Ear has not seen, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, or neither has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them. In other words, you're not going to sit down by your own reason and think up spiritual truth about God. You'll be off. You'll be way out in left field. You'll start a cult. Nor can you simply sit back by, you know, uh, the idea of observation experimentation, Right? eye and ear, and figure out who God is. Because the spiritual truths that God is revealing to us are beyond physical sight or physical ears or physical reason or you know, the, the ability to, to think that, that we possess as human beings. It's beyond that. So the necessity of, of enlightenment, why does God have to be the one that flips on the switch? Well, first is because of the nature of spiritual or divine truth. He's explaining things to us that are beyond our physical realm. He's explaining things that we've never seen, we've never heard, we've never even thought of. So God is revealing to us spiritual truth. But secondly... Enlightenment is absolutely necessary because of the darkened nature of sinful humanity. That not only is he trying to explain to us things that we have never seen, heard, or thought of, but he's also trying to explain it to people who don't want to listen. We plug our ears and we say, God, don't say it. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me who you are. Don't tell me that I'm sinful. Don't tell me what's right and what's wrong or how to live my life. I want to be my own God. I want to be autonomous. I want to decide what's right and wrong for me. So we plug our ears. God says in Hosea 12 or 8 verse 12, God says, I have written down marvelous things in my law, but they wouldn't listen. In other words, we are stubborn and we are rebellious and we are sinful. So we could not come to knowledge of spiritual truth on our own because it's spiritual truth. It's things we've never seen, heard, or thought of. But not only can we not, we would not. That's the second one. Had we a choice, we would choose against it because we're sinful and we're stubborn. But also, thirdly, because of the powerful working of Satan. Go to Acts chapter 26 real quick. I just want to read these couple of verses. Acts 26, Paul, recall this? This wasn't that long ago when we were studying our uh, way through the book of Acts. And we all remember, right, with absolutely no shaky memory whatsoever. But Acts 26, Paul is rehearsing his personal testimony before Agrippa. Do you remember this? He says this, 
describing his own commission. God gave him this commission. He says, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send you. In other words, God is sending Paul to the Gentiles. Why? Verse 18, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. This was God's commission to Paul. Paul, go preach to the Gentiles. Why? So that their eyes might be opened. That they would be transferred from darkness to light. From the power of Satan unto God. And this power of Satan is powerful. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 real quick. Let me read this passage and then we'll get back to Ephesians, I promise. But it's helpful for us to recognize why this is so important. Why is Paul praying for enlightenment? Because we need it. Because of the nature of spiritual truth, the darkened nature of sinful humanity, but also the powerful working of Satan. Go to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1 to 6. Paul says this. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, which he just talked about, the ministry of, you know, the new covenant ministry of proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, the fulfillment of the new covenant, etc. He says, therefore, seeing we have this ministry, we have received mercy and we faint not. We don't give up. In other words, Paul says, I preach and I keep preaching, even when people throw stones, don't get any ideas, but still, when people throw stones or tomatoes or whatever else, he says, we don't stop. Why? Because we've received mercy. We don't faint. We don't give up. But we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. This is one of my favorite texts for New Testament preaching you know, ministry. He says, we're not handling the word of God deceitfully. I don't have to try and deceive you into believing the word of God. I don't have to somehow bring down the word of God, or as he puts it, uh, in fact, he uses the term sincere in this text where he's, he's talking about sincere means unadulterated, unmixed. It's not an alloy. I don't have to mix scripture with something else to make it appealing to you. Rather, he says, just without shame, unabashedly, unveil the scripture. Just talk about the Bible. And he says, when you do this, by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's what we do. But, verse 3, if our gospel be hid. Has it ever happened to you? Where you're giving the gospel to somebody and you are trying your best, the clearest way you know how to explain the truth of the scripture. And then it just like bounces off them. They don't get it. They look at you like you got three heads. You know, they're like, what in the world? And you're just like, you know, like, let me back up and try again. And so you do it again, and they still don't get it. Well, he says, if our gospel is hid, if they don't grasp it, it's hid to them that are lost. In whom, verse 4, the God of this world. Who is that? Just so we're all on the same page. It's Satan. In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. In other words, enlightenment is an absolute necessity. God must shine the light. Why? Because of the nature of spiritual truth, divine truth. It's spiritual in nature. We're sinful and rebellious and don't want to hear it. But also Satan is working hard to keep you in the dark. He is working hard to keep you ignorant of spiritual truth. 
And he has designed a whole world system that is designed to flash before you the falsehoods of life so that you would not come to an awareness and an understanding of the scripture. But praise the Lord, we have the word of God, the people of God, the spirit of God that heralds forth the truth of the scripture. And God shines the light on a darkened world so that they can come to an understanding of God and his grace. We have to have God work. D.L. Moody put it this way. He once said, the Bible without the Holy Spirit is like a sundial sundial by moonlight. Right? I kind of like that. The Bible without the Holy Spirit is a sundial by moonlight. We must have the Spirit of God to shine. In other words, putting it another way, I cannot live how I need to live without knowing what I need to know. Yet I can't know, I cannot know what I need to know without God revealing it to me. I have to have awareness and understanding of spiritual truth, or I'm never going to grow. I'm never going to get saved in the first place, let alone grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But I can't know without God's working. He must shine the light. So that's what Paul is praying for. That's what he's trying to get us to understand. He's trying to help us recognize that we must grasp the truth of the scripture only by the word of of God and the spirit of God in our life. Now, what we're going to see, I'm not going to spend time this morning getting into this because we're out of time. But what we're going to see, beginning next week, is that Paul is praying that God would enlighten our minds about three things. And you'll see them in verse 18 and 19. And we don't have time to talk about this morning. We'll come back. But jot it down. Read ahead. This is where we're heading. Paul wants God to flip the switch and turn on the light so that we can spiritually understand three things. First, the hope of his calling. Number two, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And number three, the exceeding greatness of his power toward us. In other words, Paul says, if we can supernaturally come to understand through the Spirit of God in our life these three things, then we are set for spiritual success. That we can become the Christians that we ought become. If we understand the hope of God's calling the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and the exceeding greatness of his power toward us. But that's next week. What I want you to see today and contemplate for just a moment is that we need to take the prayer of Paul and make it our own. As I said at the beginning, this prayer, as others recorded in the book of Ephesians and elsewhere, Philippians uh, chapter 1 is a great one. One of my favorites is Philippians 1. But the prayers of Paul recorded in the New Testament are here because God wants us to pray this way. And and I I know I've shared this before from personal testimony, uh, and and this is, you know, uh, so forgive me if it's redundant for some of you. But when I was in high school, you know, because I started reading my Bible regularly when I was was pretty young. I was about 12 years old, and my, my dad just really challenged me to do it. And so I, I started reading, and it was haltingly. You know, I wouldn't read it every day, and I'd get bored. I'd fall asleep reading my, reading my Bible, you know. And yet I just, by raw, you know, discipline and my dad's encouragement, I just, I would read, you know, as, as best I could. 
But then somewhere in my high school years, I came across and I really got a hold of this doctrine, the doctrine of illumination. And it dawned on me that what the Bible is promising me with the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life is that I have the author of the scripture living inside of me. And he is promising me understanding, supernatural understanding of his word. And so it, it, it just clicked in my head. And I said, wait a minute, every time I open this book, it's a supernatural experience. And I have the author of this book living inside of me, whispering, if you will, the truth of the scripture, hunching over my shoulder, if you will, pointing things out, say, oh, slow down, slow down, go back. Look at that. Are you getting that? And when I started to grasp the reality that God is promising to me supernatural wisdom from his spirit, and I began to believe that, it revolutionized my Bible study. I started reading the scripture voraciously. I couldn't put it down. I started reading and writing my observations. I started praying, God, help me. And I started realizing, you know what, before I open the scripture, and I do this to this day, and this is why we lead the, you know, and, and Peter or whoever else stands up on a Sunday morning and they open in prayer, is because we need God's supernatural guidance that God would flip the switch and help us understand. And so we pause and we pray and we ask God to do that. And when we have an understanding of belief in this promise, I would encourage you, allow it to revolutionize your Bible study. And I pray that it'll do for you what it has done for me. But nonetheless, I want you, in order to, you know, for that end, I want us to sing a song, right? Because what you need is a hymn. You all look like you need a, a song. You need to sing a song. It's just written all over your face. So stand up if you would. Daniel, take your place. Or uh, What I want to do, and I'll walk you through the, the lyrics here real quick, but I want to sing the song, Speak, O Lord. How many of you are familiar with the song? You know this song. We've sang it here several times. But the song, Speak, O Lord, is a song that is essentially a prayer. It's a prayer for God to do what Paul just asked him to do. Let me briefly show you the lyrics, then we'll sing it together before we dismiss. All right? Look at these. 